listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Um, I'm going to jump in uh, immediately with teaching. Uh, If you haven't shared it, take a minute to do so. Today I'm talking about a very important subject. Seven crucial decisions that ensure you will never lose salvation, your salvation. Seven crucial decisions that you must take, make, to ensure you never lose your salvation. And um, I want to show you something here. And, uh, and if you have your Bible, I'm, I'm really just taking not even a very long passage of Scripture. And we're going to be kind of staying right here. Uh, but um, I'm in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 1. We're going to read down maybe through verse 4 or so. And then we'll get into the seven decisions. Because I want to show you why it's so important. Hey, Britt, good morning. There's my dad. Love you, dad. <laughs> my dad said, who is Ashley? I'm talking about Ashley Melton and Ted Melton, not my dad. Um, <laughs> it's like last night, Pastor Sam got up and said, uh, you know, I heard Brother Ted say something during bedtime prayers. And then he began to talk about what it was. And I took the microphone. And I said, just for everybody listening here that may not know, I wasn't in Pastor Sam's bedroom doing bedtime prayers with him at night. I said, that's a show that my cousin and I do online. It's called Bedtime Prayers. I wasn't saying bedtime prayers with Pastor Sam, uh, just to clear that up. And so (laughs) I'm glad we were able to make the distinction. Um, But anyway, uh, I'll have you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to give you a cool insight here uh, from the beginning of this letter from Peter. But we're going to deal with these seven crucial decisions every Christian must make uh, to stay in the kingdom of God. And so uh, as we start, I will make reference to what did James say uh, in his epistle? James said, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, being alone or by itself. Uh, can, and then James makes the point, can that type of faith save you? And obviously it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, that type of faith cannot save you. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 21, that those who love him will obey or keep his commandments or his instructions. And so faith is proven by actions. Let me say that again. Faith is proven by actions. And I want you to put it in the comments as we uh, jumping right in at the top here. Put this in the comments. Faith is proven by actions. And that's the point James is making in his letter. And it's the point that Jesus is, point, is making to us in uh, John 14. You can say it all day long. You can, well, I love the Lord. I'm sold out to God. You know, I'm, I'm uh, on fire for Jesus. But faith without works is dead. So that means faith is proven by actions. Very important to know. Faith is proven. Good morning, Janine. Glenn Karam, love you, buddy. Faith is proven by actions. There's my friend, Mario Varkas. Good to see you on today. Faith is proven by actions. And now here we are in 2 Peter chapter 1. And um, let me read this to you. And uh, 
This was an interesting thing. And you could note this in your Bible as well. Hey, Patty, note this in your Bible. Make, make a, uh, make a marking of this because you know, there are still people to this day who will act like Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be divine. You know, that that's something that the church has made up. You know, there's people that actually claim that Jesus never claimed to be divine. That's just something the church invented. You know, he just, he was a prophet. He was a teacher, but look at this. Not only did Jesus claim it, the early church recognized it, you know, cause that's one of the things they say, well, you know, that didn't until hundreds of years later, people started coming up with the thought Jesus was God. No, that's not true. Even the early church and the apostles affirmed Jesus as God in the flesh. And uh, this verse will show that to us. Second Peter one and verse one, listen to this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of, look at this phrase, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look what Peter calls him, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Refers to him uh, as both of those things, as our God and as our Savior. It's not talking about two different people, it's talking about Jesus of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he then says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. You know, it's interesting. Um, Here, we see something that grace and peace can be multiplied. Isn't that interesting? So that means there are things you can do to multiply your own grace. That really uh, destroys the argument that all grace is unmerited favor, doesn't it? Well, you've heard, you've probably heard people say that grace is unmerited favor. Not all grace is unmerited favor. Some is saving grace is unmerited favor. For example, God didn't have to send Jesus to the earth. He just chose to out of his own love for the earth, but there was nothing we could have done. Nothing. Anyone on the earth did that forced God to send Jesus. That was unmerited. No merit uh, caused that to happen. But there's other grace, there's other favor that is merited. And here's what you can see here in 2 Peter 1. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How is it multiplied to you? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So here's an example. As your knowledge of God increases, your grace and your peace increase. You see that? As your knowledge of God increases, your grace and your peace also increase. Where do you get knowledge of God? There's only one place to get knowledge of God. That's the written word of God. Nothing can be known about God outside of his written word. Nothing. There's no other revelation of God, of Christ, outside of the written word. None. And so if you want to increase in grace or favor, if you want to increase in peace, then it comes through the knowledge or the increased knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And so here that's telling us that there's power as we study the word, as we get it into us, our favor increases, our grace increases, our peace increases. So one of the things we should learn right off the bat is if we will put the word of God 
into our spirits. If we'll study the word of God, favor will increase upon our lives. Favor doesn't come uh, more readily just because of a prayer. It can be imparted to you. But one of the most lasting ways to receive an impartation of divine favor or grace is through the impartation of the word of God. Put it in your spirit. Put it in your spirit and watch what will happen as you increase. And so Peter goes on to say, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which he's granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, which we are having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, let's jump into these seven things. Your faith has to be accompanied by seven other attributes, which are decisions, in order to confirm your election, the Bible says. And that's what we're going to read in a moment. That will confirm your election. Um, let Let me show you this. Uh, go down to verse eight with me real quickly and we'll come and we'll go back and we'll backtrack. But second Peter one, eight, listen to what Peter wrote for if these qualities that we're about to cover, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Did you see that? It's talking about falling away from the faith, confirming your election, confirming your election. It's like, you know, have you ever uh, made a reservation at a restaurant? And there's such a busy restaurant that they will actually call you to confirm your reservation. Hey, we just want to confirm you're still going to be here tonight. Uh, A lot of people waiting for tables. And if you're, if you wanted to cancel, we just want to know. So we had the availability to let somebody else sit down. Have you ever had that happen? A restaurant calls you to confirm your reservation. And this is what Peter's saying. He's saying that there are things you can do as a Christian to confirm, as it were, your reservation in heaven to confirm your election and to confirm your calling. And these seven things that I'm going to show you today are the seven decisions that must be made and the seven qualities that have to accompany your faith in order to confirm your election and never fall away. So let's jump into these. If we jump back to uh, verse five, listen to what the Bible says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So put it in the uh, comment section, number one, virtue. Hey, Lena, glad you're on today. Hey, Yanil, put it in the comments, number one, with virtue. Our faith must be accompanied by virtue. There's my friend, Pastor Cody Spencer, that I get to see soon. Love you, buddy. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, he, he makes a great point. Cody's making a great point. He loves that character is the first thing to add to your faith. So when we use that word virtue, it actually means moral goodness. 
moral goodness, excellence, virtue. Same where Paul says, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things, things that are excellent, things that are morally good. And it's awesome. And of course, Pastor Cody released that book recently on discipleship called Built. He's teaching people how to grow in strength in their Christianity or their Christian walk. And one, you don't just have faith. According to Peter, you add to your faith virtue, which is moral goodness. It's character. It's being morally good. Well, you understand as well as I do that there's no Christian or there, excuse me, there's no sinner that can just choose to be morally good. Your sin is something that is embedded in you as a sinner. And until your nature changes through salvation, you cannot choose to be holy. You cannot choose to be righteous. There is no choosing to be righteous. He has given you the righteousness of God in Christ. He's made you to be righteous. But after you get saved, you are now no longer a slave to sin. And so now in your new nature, in your new being, you're a new creation, the Bible says, in that new nature, you've got the ability and the power to choose things that are holy, choose things that are good, choose things that are excellent or that have virtue. And so the first thing Peter lists after having faith, supplement your faith, add to your faith, virtue. And that's what James is saying. Faith without works is dead. How pointless. You know, I'm sure every person on here hates to see, uh, you know, a, a hypocritical mindset. Raise your hand in the comments if you've ever dealt with Christian hypocrites that preach one thing, say one thing, and do another thing. You know, I'm sure many of us have encountered those types of people. They preach one thing, say one thing, do another thing. And what is that? Their, their faith is without works. They're not proving their faith by what they do with life. Look at all the hands going up in the comments. People are like, yep, I've met that guy. <laughs> I've met that girl. I know who they are. And so it's, it's sad. Some people got two hands going up, five hands, seven hands. You know who I'm talking about. They claim to love Jesus. They claim to be a Christian, but they don't obey the Bible. They don't do what the Bible says. Their faith is without works. Or as we could say here, they've not added to their faith virtue, moral goodness. You see that? And so it's very important to understand this. And I think Cody makes a great point in the comments is that God inspired Peter to write this to the churches in Asia Minor and says to them that you've got to make sure that the first thing that is accompanying your faith is moral goodness. It's virtue. Yeah. Oh, of course we have. Fabiola said there's people all over the place that have uh, done things that don't reflect uh, what the word of God says and that, and reflect the commands or teachings of Christ. Of course, everybody has made mistakes, but I'm talking about people that are constantly doing it. They're engaged in constant lack of virtue, lack of integrity, lack of discipline to do what the Bible says. It's a, it's a hypocrite. There's a difference. And I love my father preaches this. There's a difference between someone who's a hypocrite and someone who's weak in faith. There's a difference between the two. The, he, the, the hypocrite is someone who knows what they're doing. 
someone who understands it and they still choose to do it. And the one who's weak in faith, maybe they're newly saved. Maybe they're growing in the things of God. You understand? And maybe they're still growing in maturity and they make a mistake, but then they come right back on track rather than living that way as their practice. And so Peter says, first thing you got to add to your faith is virtue. And then look at this as we continue on in verse five and add to your virtue knowledge. You see that add to your virtue knowledge. So number two, put it in the comments. The second thing that you've got to add to your faith, the second decision that must be made is knowledge. You've got to build knowledge. I find that, I find that interesting. And I wouldn't just, obviously, I'm not going to just say, well, you know, any kind of knowledge, it's not talking about going to school. (laughs) That's not what it means. Read the passage in context and ask yourself, what kind of knowledge would Peter be talking about? Well, didn't we just cover that in verse two? Isn't he just, didn't he just finish talking about a certain type of knowledge? What kind? The knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So he's not just talking about any kind of knowledge. He's talking about a very specific kind of knowledge, the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord, which we said a moment ago, the only way to gain that knowledge is through reading the word of God. And so Peter's telling us by the Holy Spirit that we're not just to add virtue to our faith, but also knowledge. And in context, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that can come through reading the Bible that can come through listening to preaching and teaching as you're doing right now. It could come by reading a book from somebody who's teaching on the word of God, a podcast, an audio book, whatever it might be, miracle word radio. It's putting the word of God into your spirit. Add to your virtue, knowledge, the knowledge of God. Well, why is that? Because, and remember the, remember the overarching principle that we're teaching here. The overarching principle is things that you must do to confirm your calling, confirm your election to make sure you never fall away from the faith. Well, notice what David said in the Old Testament, Psalm 119. What did he say? He said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. So even David understood this. David understood that if I can hide the word of God in my heart, it will be something that keeps me a buffer from sinning against God. And so as we're confirming our election, as we're making our calling sure, what's the thing that we've got to add to our faith? Knowledge of God comes from the word of God. As we add this into our spirit and constantly pour in, it is the fuel to please God. It is the fuel for multiplied favor, multiplied grace, multiplied peace, and the ability to please God with our actions. That's the key. You see that. So he says, add to your faith virtue. That's number one. And then to your virtue, add knowledge. And that's the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his word. Again, I can't stress this enough. All that can be known about God is found in the scripture, in the scripture. This, and and the reason I say that, by the way, let me tell you why I say it, because I'm sure people get all, if they've never been taught this, people say, well, yeah, but what about revelation? What about the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Can't the Holy Spirit speak and tell you something about God that the word of God never said? No, 
No, the Holy Spirit will never tell you something about God or reveal something about Christ to an individual that's not in the written word of God. I want to say that again because it's very important. The Holy Spirit's not going to reveal something about God or something about Jesus to an individual that the word, the written word of God has not never revealed. Because now you've got, now that individual would have revelation that's necessary, that's outside of what every other Christian has. And, and notice what um, Timothy uh, got a, a letter from Paul. And this is what Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, listen to this. Verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now listen to this, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. That's, that's important that you get that. Equipped for every good work. And so if there were, and I want you to think about this logically, if there were things about God or things about Jesus that we would get from maybe the, a private revelation from the Holy Spirit then that would mean that there were things we're missing that only the Holy Spirit can tell us about God or about Christ. So we can't be complete in him and equipped for every good work if there are things we're missing because they're not in the Bible, but they come through private revelation of the Holy Ghost. That's not how God operates. All that we need to know about God or about Christ is found in the Bible, all of it. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit can't speak to you. Doesn't mean that he can't lead you and guide you into all truth. Doesn't mean that he doesn't empower you. None of those things, these aren't mutually exclusive. So understand, the Holy Spirit can still speak to you. He can still lead you and he can still guide you. He still empowers you. But notice, he will never add on to the revelation about God or about Christ something that's not found in the written word of God. Because think of it this way, if he did, then we could start to create doctrine about God or doctrine about Jesus that's not found or based in the scripture. How would we judge it? Think about that. How would we rightly divide it? That's an important question. Because what if somebody came up with a false doctrine about Jesus and said, well, actually, I believe this about God. I believe the Holy Spirit showed me this about God. The Holy Spirit showed me this about Jesus and they pull the God card on you. Well, if that's true and they start to build a doctrine about God or a doctrine about Christ, that's something the Holy Spirit gave them. How would we even be able to judge whether it's true or not? Here's how we judge. Does it line up with what the Bible already says? Because God, that's why God gave us his word so that we may be complete. Everybody put that Put that word in the comments, all capital letters, complete, complete. The man, the woman of God can be complete through what? Through the scripture, all scripture breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching you, reproving you, correcting you, and training you, training you until completion. So you can be complete with the scripture. You can be complete knowing what you need to know about God, Christ, the gospel from the scripture alone, sola scriptura. <laughs> and obviously that means something different to us than it does to others. But 
That's why God gave us the scripture. That's it. Put it in the comments. Complete. You are complete through the word of God. Complete through the word. And so notice this. Number one, virtue. Add to your faith, virtue. And add to your virtue, knowledge. And we know that's the knowledge of God. Let's keep going. Verse six. And add to your knowledge, self-control. Man, that's good. Add to your knowledge. Number three, self-control. Very, very important. (laughs) I can't... I can't tell you how important this one is because if you've ever heard me teach on the fruit of the spirit, you'll know that, of course, I believe that self-control is the most important fruit of the spirit. I believe it with all my heart and I have a reason that I believe that. Although Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians that uh, of the three eternal things, faith, hope, and love, that love is the greatest of all of these. And so we know love is the greatest of the fruit of the spirit. But I want you to remember this, though it's the greatest, has has the most impact. Of course, the Bible tells us God is love. And so it is the greatest because God is great and he is the greatest. But self-control is the most important of of the nine fruit of the spirit. And the reason I say that is because, and this is not a self-help gospel, this is something that can only be done by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And so every one of the fruit of the Spirit are decisions. They're actions, right? It's not a feeling. Love's not a feeling, it's an action. Joy's not a feeling, it's an action. Peace is not a feeling, it's an action. How do you act when you're peaceful? See, peace is something you have that you act upon. So is joy, so is love. So is gentleness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, temperance or self-control. And so self-control is important because you take the action. If you don't have self-control, then all of the other eight fruit of the spirit mean nothing because your carnal flesh will overtake you and you'll never make those decisions to be self-controlled enough to walk in love, to walk in joy, to walk in peace, to walk in patience to be gentle, to be good, to be meek. You see what I mean? And so if you don't have self-control in place, and that's why the apostle Peter is now commanding us to add to our faith, virtue, to add to our virtue, knowledge, add to your knowledge, self-control, right? If you don't have, (laughs) that's right. Thank you for putting that in, Sean. I must have said that previously, but the fruit of the spirit is proactive, not reactive. And that's, that's an important point to make. You say, well, I'll walk in love towards them when they're nice to me. You will, you'll never walk in love. You operating in the fruit of the spirit should never be a reaction to something someone else did. Rather, it is you taking action regardless of what others have done. Regardless, doing it because we're commanded to. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and self-control against these. There is no law, Paul wrote to the Galatians. So you see that now. I'm proactive, not reactive. And self-control is to be added to our knowledge and our virtue and our faith because without it, there's nothing we can do for God. We will not ever bring our flesh into subjection 
to make it obey Jesus Christ. And you know what's crazy? The Apostle Paul, who was uh, the most uh, prolific and the most impactful apostle of the New Testament, uh, said that he had to do this on a daily basis. Think about that. Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, founded churches throughout uh, the world, and then, of course, continued to write to them uh, from prison. And, and he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, that he has to control his body daily. It's mind-blowing that even the greatest of all the apostles had to do this on a daily basis. Daily basis. And so I want to go further. It's not just number three, self-control, but keep on going. Still in verse six, 2 Peter 1, 6, and to your self-control add steadfastness. Add steadfastness. To be steadfast. What does that mean? To stand in that place being faithful. I'll tell you another thing. If you're steadfast, one of the things that you that you'll think of is not somebody that's just uh, faithful, but somebody who endures. Think about that. If you're steadfast, you're not just faithful, but you endure. That's, that's a very vital thing because what does the Bible teach? He that endures to the end shall be saved. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? He or she that endures to the end shall be saved. The Bible tells us that's very important. And so uh, uh, here Peter's teaching us to your faith, add virtue, then add knowledge, then add self-control. Those are the first three. And then fourth, add steadfastness. We are faithful and enduring. Any Christian, as, as he's teaching us here, how to confirm our election and make our calling sure. Well, here's how. This is exactly how you confirm your election and make sure your calling is in place. Steadfastness. I am faithful to God, unwavering, and I'm, uh, not only that, I'm enduring. I'm enduring. Um, let me, of course, you know it. Let me just read it here from the, the definition. It's the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. Oh, it, it does, Jen. Jen said, does that mean it's somewhat good to be stubborn? Absolutely, it means it is good. On the right things, you should be very stubborn. On the right things, very stubborn. I won't move off of this. You know, it's what blows my mind. Like I, I watch, I watch some of these people that call themselves Christians, quote unquote, sold out to God and all this other stuff. And they can't even answer the most basic questions when they're asked publicly. And it blows my mind. Get stubborn on the doctrines of scripture or what the Bible teaches. Get stubborn about it. And it doesn't mean you do it in a nasty attitude. It doesn't mean that you do it arrogantly. You do it with gentleness and with respect. First Peter 3.15 have an answer ready for anybody that asks you about the hope that's within you, but do it with gentleness and with respect. And so it doesn't mean you get arrogant about it, but how can you go as a preacher onto a, a national, a nationally syndicated talk show 
And you know the questions they're going to ask you about the Bible. You know they're going to ask you about homosexuality. You know they're going to ask you about all these different things that are you know popular in culture today. And then say, well, do you really believe that's a sin? Do you really believe that that'll send somebody to hell? Do you really believe you, you can't be a Christian and homosexual at the same time? And it blows my mind that you got all these guys that are celebrity preachers that go on these shows like Larry King before he passed away or Piers Morgan or uh, The View or Oprah or whatever they go on and sit there and they say, well, you know, I don't know. It's not for me to judge. And, you know, I, I liked, I'd rather have a single conversation with somebody rather than make a blanket statement. Why can't you make a blanket statement when the Bible does make a blanket statement? That's like, that's as stupid as saying, well, you know, I don't, do you think, do you really think people who murder aren't going to, to heaven? Well, you know, I don't like to say those types of things about murderers. You know, I just, I would like to have an individual conversation with every murderer. You know, I don't like to make blanket statements about murder and rape. I really think that we should judge each individual case. Why can't you make an, uh, that kind of a, uh, uh, a distinction? Why can't you make a statement that the Bible already makes? You know why? It's because the Bible prophesies that there will be people who will not endure. Uh, and the Bible says even in the last days, there won't be, there will be people that will not endure sound doctrine. They won't endure sound doctrine. You know what else, you know what they'll do? According to the Bible, people will uh, accumulate to themselves teachers who will teach false doctrines because they have itching ears to hear the things that only they want to hear. So what do they do? They accumulate to themselves teachers who will teach false doctrines. And that's what's going on. You've got teachers that are teaching false doctrine to appease the crowds. They're not steadfast. Let me just tell you that. They're not steadfast. They're not faithful. They're not enduring because they won't preach the truth in the face of persecution. I mean, if, you, if they lived in the first 300 years of Christianity, they'd have never died. They'd have never died of martyrdom because they would have quickly said, well, you know, I don't want to say Jesus is truly resurrected from the dead. Uh, you know, I'd like to just have an individual conversation with each person who asks me that, uh, you know, do I believe Jesus was raised from the dead? You know, I'm not, I'm not one to judge. Uh, you know, I'm, and that's exactly how they would have been back then before the peace of the church came. First 300 years, strong persecution, believers being cut in half, beheaded, crucified, fed to lions, all that stuff. And they would have never had that kind of a fate because they'd have been those people. Well, you know, I'm not one to say he's raised from the dead. You know, I've heard that too. And, you know, I just, no, it's stupid. It's stupid. And the same lack of endurance or steadfastness that's in these that will not declare the word of God is in, is what the Bible teaches people that will fall away. And that's Bible prophecy, by the way, that in the last days, the hearts of many will grow cold and there'll be a falling away. People will fall away from the faith. They will fall away from the faith. Can I ask you a question? If, how can people fall away from a faith that they've never truly been a part of? That's a question I always have and I ask it humbly. But for people that believe that you're, uh, totally predestined for salvation or you're not, you're either totally elected for salvation or you're not. I always ask the question, how could anybody fall away 
from something they were never a part of in the first place. Because that's the argument of people who believe in the elect and in predestination of salvation. They say, well, if somebody looks like they got saved and then goes back to living a life of sin, they were never truly saved in the first place. And so I ask myself, well, if that's true, who are these people who fell away then? Many in the last days, many will fall away from the faith. How can you be apostate? How can you have apostasy if you were never truly a part of the fellowship? I don't understand that. Many will fall away. Okay, who are they? How do, they, how do you fall away from something you weren't a part of? Again, I'll go to John 15, where the Bible's Jesus is teaching this. He said that I'm the vine, you're the branches. Anyone who is in me, catch this now. Anyone who is in me that does not produce fruit, my father will then cut them off. My father, who's the husbandman or the vine dresser, will cut them off of the vine and throw them into a pile to be burned. You ever ask yourself this question? Because there's no sinner that's ever been connected to Christ. Remember that. And he said, I am the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. There's no sinner that's ever been connected to Christ. And he said, any one of you that does not produce fruit is cut off from the vine and thrown into a pile to be burned. Again, even if you're going to use this because you say, well, Jesus was teaching the Jews. He wasn't talking to unbelievers. This is not for Christians and unbelievers. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews about the fact that, uh, as Paul later teaches, that the Jews that were already in uh, the family of God were taken out and those that were Gentiles were grafted in to the family of God. Even if that's the case, you're not Christian. You're not connected to the vine by birth. Nobody's connected to the vine by birth. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So it doesn't matter if you're born Jewish. Even if you use that argument in John 15 to say, well, he's talking to the Jews, how they were born into God's family, but then they were thrown away. And no, even if that's the case, there's no Jew that's born a Christian, none. And there's no Gentile born a Christian. If you're in Christ, that's terminology that Paul uses throughout the New Testament. That's Pauline revelation in Christ, in whom, in him. It's talking about people that are saved. So you can't be in Christ and not saved at the same time. You realize that, right? Somebody put that in the comments. I can't be in Christ and unsaved at the same time. I can't be in Christ and unsaved at the same time. So who are these people that were connected to the vine of Christ? Who are these people who were in Christ until the father disconnected them for their lack of fruitfulness? and throw them in a pile to be burned. If that's not a picture of true apostasy, I don't know what is. If that's not a picture of people losing their covenant with Christ, I don't know what is. And we see that. I can't be in Christ and unsaved at the same time. You can't be alive and dead at the same time. Anybody who's in Christ is alive unto God. 
Anybody who's not in Christ is dead in trespasses and in their sins. You can't be both simultaneously. And that's very plain in scripture. And so, and of course he says what it is, those who don't produce fruit, that's John 15. My father is locating the branches that refuse to produce fruit. The fruit is the actions of holiness and of righteousness that go out of your life. That God's looking for. Faith without works is dead, being alone. And so that's why I'm bringing that up on this fourth point, steadfastness. 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 Endurance. Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so we endure to the end. We endure. We're living every day like Jesus is coming today. That's the key. And it takes steadfastness. Add to your uh, self-control steadfastness. That is endurance. That is faithfulness to the word of God. Number four. Let's go on. Let's go on. Number five. What does Peter say next? Uh, Add to your self-control steadfastness and to your steadfastness add godliness or supplement your steadfastness with godliness. What is godliness? Holy living. Holy living. That's all it is. It's not, it is not a, a difficult thing to define. Godliness is holy living. It's obedience to the mighty word of God. It's obedience. But notice if you combine these two, steadfastness and godliness, it doesn't just mean obedience to the word for one day. Obedience to the, to the word on Sundays, obedience to the word for a week. Notice it's godliness until the end comes. It's godliness. We endure in godliness. We are steadfast. We are faithful in godliness until the end, until the end. That is one reason, by the way, that those who are reformed teach the perseverance of the saints because That, which is the fifth point of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. All that means is that those who are truly righteous will be godly and persevere until the end. And I agree, they will. (laughs) I don't disagree on that point, that people who are saved will persevere until the end. They will be godly until the end. They're not going to go off living in sin and then still be saved at the end. They will be godly and steadfast and faithful until the end. No question about that. No question about that. And so Peter says, and to your steadfastness, add godliness or supplement it with godliness. Paul wrote to Timothy. And what did he say? He said, physical exercise profits only a little, but godliness is profitable Unto all things, holding promise, not only in life to come, but in this life, in this life and in the life to come. So there are blessings for godliness right now. There are blessings for godliness before you get to heaven. It's a seed that produces a harvest of blessing. Amen. Godliness is a seed that produces a harvest of blessing. In fact, there is no greater key in the kingdom than holiness. No greater key. Pastor Enoch Adeboye called it in his message, the master key. 
the master key, opens every door. Godliness opens every door. What does Psalm 84, 11 say? He will not withhold any good thing from who? Those that walk uprightly, those that are holy, those that are godly. What does the Bible say in Job 36, 11? If they will only obey and serve me, they will spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Holiness, godliness holds reward right now. Holds reward right now and in the life to come. So add to, uh, he says, add to your endurance, your steadfastness, godliness. Go to verse seven now. The next one, how many have we done? Now we have virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness is number five. And number six, add to your godliness, brotherly affection. Add to your godliness, brotherly affection. Now I'm going to do two things here at these last two and show you something powerful because you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't, this is kind of, and I'll show you how it's kind of a little bit vague in a way when you read these last two, but I'm going to show you why they're different. He said, add to your, um, godliness, brotherly affection. Let me pull that up. If you're looking uh, at that in the Greek language, um, he actually says, add to your godliness, Philadelphia. That's what it says in the Greek manuscripts. It says, add to your godliness, Philadelphia, which is what? <clears throat> brotherly love. That's why if you go to Philadelphia, it's called the city of brotherly love. Of course, you won't find that much on the streets, but you know, that's what, that's what the name means. It's an actual Greek word. If you didn't know that, you've just learned something. Philadelphia is an actual Greek word that means brotherly love. It's a type of love, phileo. It's brotherly love. And in this case, it's, it's the morphology, Philadelphia. Add to your godliness, brotherly love. See, because when we, when we read those two, the two last ones, and I'll give them to you and then we'll break them down. He said, um, add to your godliness, brotherly love. And look at this, uh, or, or this, this, uh, translation, the ESV says brotherly affection and, uh, add to your brotherly affection love, but it really just means brotherly love. So isn't that kind of weird when you're like, but the last two that Peter gives us is have brotherly love and then have love doesn't make quite, quite a, a lot of sense when you're looking at it that way, have brotherly love and then have love. So let me break it down for you because it'll help you to see the two Greek words here. Add to your godliness, Philadelphia, which is love for your brothers. So one of the things we do to endure to the end is we love our brothers, or as one, as the commandment says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus gave us in the new Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself, or here, as Peter says, love the brothers. Now, of course, now, let me break two things down here. Of course, we know that as Christians, we're supposed to show love to all people. And we, we do that truly by preaching the gospel to the sinner. There's no greater way to show love to the sinner than to give them the good news about Christ that will save their soul from damnation. So, well, you know, what about buying them a meal? That's a wonderful thing to do. Buy them a meal. 
But this is where I have a problem with uh, humanitarian organizations that go out into the communities of the world and say, well, you know what? We're just going to show love to those that are hurting with humanitarian efforts. You know what? Your humanitarian efforts mean nothing if they're ab- if the gospel's absent in your humanitarian efforts. That's why I partner and we partner with Feed the Hungry because Feed the Hungry doesn't just feed the hungry. <laughs> you know, if you think that that's all they do because that's the name of the organization, you're wrong. They don't just feed the hungry. They preach the gospel to those that need the gospel. The, the feeding of the hungry is literally just an inroads to having ears who will listen. It's all, let me tell you something. It's a whole lot easier to sit and listen to a message about Jesus when you're not starving. <laughs> when you don't have uh, hunger pangs racking your body because you haven't eaten in a week. Whole lot easier to listen and concentrate and focus on a message after you've had something that fills you. And that's what they do. They bless the poor. They bless those that are hungry. They feed the hungry, but they don't stop there. They give them Bibles and they preach to them and they win them to Jesus and they disciple them. You see? And so the greatest love we can have for sinners is to give them the gospel. But here, I would argue that Peter's not just talking about loving everyone. He's talking about loving the brothers and your brothers are those that are in Christ, loving your brothers, loving your brothers. And of course that love should extend, but you don't love a a Christian brother, sister, the same way that you love a sinner. But, uh, John says this, if you claim you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God's not in you. First John. So anybody that thinks you can be a Christian and a racist at the same time, the Bible says you're a liar and the love of God's not in you. You know, it's all like, like, you know, back in the day, the Ku Klux Klan and all these people, you know, holding up crosses like they're God's warriors, like they're God's, God's army. They're liars and they're full of the devil. They're saying they're full of the same demon spirit of hate that the black Panthers are in any other racist group, any other racist group filled with a demon spirit of hate. And the Bible is very clear on this. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother because you're a liar. And the Bible says in order to uh, ensure your election, confirm your election, ensure your calling, you've got to add to godliness, brotherly affection or brotherly love. You've got to love people. You've got to love people. And again, this is not just something you feel in your heart. I remember I said that a moment ago about the fruit of the spirit. They are actions. They're actions. So what do we do? We say, you know, I love people. You show people you love them by how you treat them, by what you do for them. And if you want to truly be like Christ and be like the apostles, you show your love for people. You show your love for people through your actions. Amen. Very important that we know that. So, but then, isn't this kind of confusing because it says, well, add to your godliness, brotherly love, but add to your brotherly love, love. (laughs) It seems a little weird, doesn't it? But it's not weird. Because if you understood, I don't know if it was last week on Friday or Thursday, and I'm talking about studying the Bible. I think it was Friday. That we were talking, it was Friday, and we were talking about the different ways you can study the Bible. And one of the ways I said you can do it is by topical study, 
or a word study. And I said, those two will overlap. And the reason is because when you're studying a topic, you know, you need to know what the word is that defines that topic in either the Hebrew or the Greek. And I, I made the point that love has seven different Greek words that mean different kinds of love. They're not all the same, but in English, it's just translated as one word love. And we don't know which it means, but honestly, do you think that God loved the world in the same way that a husband loves a wife? It's not the same. It's not eros or eros. That's that kind of where we get the word erotic. It's not that kind of love. It's not romantic love. It's a different kind of love. It's agape. It's the God kind of love. So there's seven Greek words that mean love and you got to know which one is which. Well, here as we finish, look what he said. Add to your godliness, Philadelphia. Well, that's phileo is one of the words that means love, but it's brotherly love. It's the kind of love you'd have uh, for your family, for your brothers. But notice at the end, he says, add to your godliness, brotherly love and add to your brotherly love, love. <laughs> and so here's, here's what it is. It goes from saying, add to your godliness, Philadelphia. And then I'm looking at the Greek manuscript here and add to your Philadelphia agape. So you see the flip, the switch. He said, add to your Philadelphia agape, which is love for God or the God kind of love. And so as we finish this seven things, look at this. The two that he gives us last are the two Jesus gave us as we're in the new covenant. There are two commandments in the new covenant. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So these last two mirror what Jesus said. We covered number six, love your brothers, brotherly love. But number seven, love God. You see that? Agape. Add to that agape love or love for God. If I was to uh, go deeper here in that word agape, it says that in the New Testament, this is the gloss on this word love or agape. In the New Testament, usually the active love of God for his son and his people, an active love of his people to have for God. You see that? This is very interesting that you see this. Let me read that to you again. Our seventh way is to love God. That's the seventh uh, important decision you got to make to ensure your calling. But listen to the gloss on this, the glossary. Love. In the New Testament, usually the active love, this is agape, it's the active love of God for his son Jesus or the active love of God for his people and it's the active love of the people that they're supposed to have for God. And of course, that's what it's talking because Peter's telling us that we're supposed to add these things to ourselves, which means we're adding our, to ourselves a love for the God who called us. You see it? Not just love for our brothers, but a love for God. So number seven is a love for God, a love for God. And it's interesting because if you get back to what I said at the beginning, John chapter 14 and verse 21, listen to what Jesus said. 
He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I'll manifest myself to him. Amen. So isn't it funny how it's like a a cyclical loop? Godliness and then a love for God, which proves godliness. It's like it goes back in a cycle. You're supposed to live holy, but then your living holy shows that you love God. And because you love God, you live holy. But because you live holy, you love God. It's like a cycle. So again, let me break this down. Peter said, if you want to make your calling sure, if you want to confirm your calling and election, then practice these qualities and you'll never fall. Real quickly again, what are they? Number one, add to your faith virtue. That's moral goodness. Add to your virtue knowledge, the knowledge of God through the word. Add to knowledge self-control. Add to your self-control steadfastness, which is endurance or faithfulness. Add to your steadfastness godliness. Then add to your godliness brotherly love. And then add to your brotherly love, love for God. Those seven things will keep you according to the Holy Spirit. Those seven things will keep you from ever falling away. They will keep your election and your calling sure. They confirm your election and they confirm your calling. It's very important that we see that. They confirm your election and they confirm your calling. Well, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. You're not without ability. You're not without the power to accomplish these seven things. You might look at that and say, man, that seems, I I don't know if I can even do it. You can do it because you're filled with the spirit of God. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to catch this today. You have the ability to do all of these seven things on a daily basis. Don't ever listen to the ridiculousness of, of these people in our generation. They're like, well, you know, I'm a mess. You know how it is. We're all a mess. No, we're not all a mess. Stop listening to that foolishness. These people that teach that, you know, well, you know, we're all just a a bunch of junk, you know, is no, don't listen to that. Even modern day worship songs, you know, it's like they're, they're so focused on the unworthiness of the Christian and it's foolish because Christ made you worthy of his goodness. You weren't worthy before. That's why it was unmerited favor and grace that Jesus Christ came. But then he made you to be the righteousness of God. And you're, you're, in, you're that through Christ. So now that you are, you're worthy to receive the blessings of God. Nobody who's unworthy can receive the blessings of God. But all who are worthy, which is every Christian, can receive the blessings of God and has received the blessings of God. Ephesians 1.3, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So not only are you worthy to receive the blessings, you've received all the blessings, according to Paul as he wrote to the Ephesians. Very important to know that. And so let me encourage you today, you continue to persevere. You continue to press in. This is going to be the greatest year we've ever had. Power of the Holy Ghost is touching our families, touching our lives. It'll be the greatest year we've ever had for the faithful. For the victory tribe, we're declaring it. We're going to run through 2021. We're going to run through 2021 in Jesus' name. 
And I want to pray for you here at the end of this broadcast because I want to see you produce like you've never produced. I want to see you uh, so extremely fruitful that it blows the mind of people all around you. And God will anoint you to do it. You're already anointed to do it. Let me pray. Father, for every person watching and all those listening on the podcast, I pray that a new boldness, urgency, and fire come upon every person to obey this word, to take these seven things upon ourselves, to supplement our faith, to make our calling and election sure. And I thank you, Lord, for that. I thank you that today we begin in a vein of fruitfulness that will never end. Let us begin to make a greater impact supernaturally than we ever have. Lord, I take authority right now over every seducing spirit, like the Bible talks about, every seducing spirit that tries to come against your people today, that tries to pull them back into a place either of sin, unfruitfulness, or feeling unworthy, a place of shame and guilt where they will not boldly approach the throne of grace. I rebuke that seducing spirit today in the mighty name of Jesus. And I loose the power of God to every man and every woman that's watching. And Father, I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their lives and their families. Bless them immensely. I pray that this would be a year that would literally not just blow the sinner's mind, blow our minds. Because you always exceed abundance. You always do more than we could ask or think. And so we thank you for that. We give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Now listen, I'm encouraging you at the end of the broadcast to sow a seed into the ministry. And we're here in Rockford, Illinois for this whole week at Riverside Assembly of God. You can see on the screen uh, how you can sow your seed. Of course, you're, those that are uh, familiar and a part of the Victory Tribe, you know, miracleword.com. You can use any of the digital platforms that are available, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, Zelle, hashtag donate in the comments. But do something by faith today that will literally shake you. If it doesn't move you, it doesn't move God. It's important to remember that. If it doesn't move me, it doesn't move God. It's got to move my faith if it's going to move God's heart. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so do what he's asking you to do today. And of course, uh, for those that are sowing, this is the month of April. And we're sending you that book by Smith Wigglesworth, which is the book called Ever Increasing Faith. For those that are sowing uh, $85 or more, you can go to miracleword.com forward slash offer. And uh, you can uh, fill out the form and we will send that to you. Uh, as soon as possible. And also those that are sowing a thousand dollars or more, one of my favorite tools is going to be put in your hands. The life application study Bible in genuine leather. I love this Bible. And, uh, this week we're creating the final stages, getting it all together to put it out the door is the, is the elite study pack. I'm very excited about this. We don't even have a picture yet to show you. We're putting it together, but what is the elite study pack? It's for people that are sowing $5,000 or more for the gospel, but I'm putting Three of the best, in my opinion, best study Bibles you can own in your hands, as well as two books that teach you how to study the Bible. And it's the Life Application Study, the Dakes Reference Bible, and the New English Translation Full Notes Edition, 60,000 notes from the translators. And then two books, Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul 
and How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. It will bless you and teach you how to get the most out of your Bible study. You'll go deeper this year in the scripture than you ever have. It'll be a massive blessing to you. And so sow your seed today. I love you. Tonight is at uh, 6.30 p.m., but it's um, central time. So for those of you that are on the East Coast, uh, we'll be going live, and it's at 7.30 on the East Coast. 6.30 in Central, uh, 5.30 Mountain, and of course, 4.30 for Lynn Ann Lakeham, who's out in Pacific time in California. Those of you watching from around the world, I know people are watching from uh, Africa, and so you can look at Central African time versus uh, the time we are here. Those in the UK that are watching, you can always compare, but um, it's going to be great. And we're here through Friday night. So if you have any way to get here at all, we want to see you. It's going to be a wonderful and a powerful week. I'm very excited about what God's doing. Um, Don't forget as well, next week is West Virginia camp meeting. And I am so excited for that. I cannot wait to see it. Um, What's going to happen next week. Let me give you one more thing before I go. And I've not really fully announced this anywhere. But, um, well, you know what? I'll wait till tomorrow. I'm going to wait till tomorrow because I want you to be ready. And I think we have some things that we'll, we'll show you tomorrow that will, uh, that will kind of give you a better visual understanding of it. But we're putting more tools together. I'm, just so you guys know, I'm always putting tools together to build your faith. I'm always putting things in your hand to try to take you to the next level. One of the things that I will tell you that I'm going to do, um, probably this week, we're in talks about it right now. A great friend of mine that I really got to know personally recently is um, Pastor Chris Palmer. And um, this is this man is not just a pastor, but he's a Pentecostal Greek scholar. Love this man. He's, re- he's produced uh, books on the Greek language. Now he's working for Whitaker House Publishing on a third book that's going to be releasing this summer. He teaches Greek at Moody uh, Bible Institute. Um, he's right now finishing his doctorate and, uh, a very intelligent man, but I love him because he's spirit filled. He believes in the gifts of the spirit, miracles, signs, wonders. He's a, he's a wonderful man of God. And, uh, Chris and I have been talking. And one of the things that we are going to do is that we're going to do a stereo broadcast together. The same platform Jonathan and I have been using for bedtime prayers. Um, we're going to be doing a stereo together probably this week. We're just figuring out the time today and day which we can do it, but we'll put it out on social media, the ad of when, when it's going to go live. But we're going to do a broadcast together on why every Christian needs to know a little bit of Greek. And uh, no better person to talk about it than him because uh, he's a Greek scholar and teaches the Greek language in, at the university level. So uh, this is going to be an amazing broadcast Um, And and I cannot wait to do it with him because this is something I truly believe. I believe every Christian needs to know. You might ask yourself, like, well, why would that be? Why can't we just pick up, you know, our our Bibles in English? It's important to remember that uh, the Bible was given to us. God chose the Greek language as the language to give us the New Testament. And so that's what God chose to do. And so as a result... Anybody that faithfully wants to study the Bible and wants to clearly see what the Lord is saying needs to look and be able to at some point look at the Greek language at some level. 
And so we're going to give you tips. We're going to give you some tricks. We're going to give you some uh, vocabulary study, thing, easy stuff that you can do as a Christian. You don't have to be a preacher to get into some of this. Look, we did it today. Those of you that are watching, uh, if you look back, we did it multiple times today and look how it benefited us in just our Bible study today. Doesn't it blow your mind that uh, while we were studying, we were able to look at the difference between Philadelphia and Agape and what that showed us as we were studying through these uh, decisions that need to be made in order to confirm our election and confirm our calling. It's important. And now we have so many of these digital Bible study tools, which we'll also talk about on the broadcast. You've got digital Bible study tools that as a Christian, you can use on your iPhone, you can use on your tablet, your laptop, and make it easy for you to get into uh, the Greek of the New Testament and have a greater understanding of the Bible. It's going to be an awesome broadcast. And so uh, we'll put it out on social media. We're just figuring out uh, the day and the time that's going to be best. But uh, I'd love to have you guys join us. If you don't have a stereo account, download the app onto your phone or tablet, whatever. And uh, I think people are joining right now. I'm getting notifications from people that are joining. But if you don't have stereo as an app, it's a live podcasting app. Download it and you can follow me at T Shuttlesworth, at T Shuttlesworth, and uh, we'll be going live sometime this week. We're going to give you the time soon. So it's going to be great. And I'm going to do some more. I've got them uh, ready to go with several other people as well. Very excited. I love you guys. Have a wonderful and a powerful day. I'll see you tonight, 630 Pacific. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.